You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting today, and with me is Colin Campbell, Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, and Will Doran. Another busy week in politics. Uh, the Supreme Court refused to issue a stay in the voter ID case, so we have a little more certainty about how the election will proceed. Uh, you won't have to show voter uh, photo ID, and you will uh, have a, a early voting starting October 20th, uh, including same-day registration. Uh, so we know a little bit more about that. And then the big news toward the end of the week was the release of uh, the state's test scores. And uh, Lynn, the uh, scores and the graduation rates looked better, right? Yeah, graduation rates are up and uh, science and math. I mean, when you look at these scores, it's like that's where the uh, major advancement was. Um, Of course, everybody's staring at reading to see what the reading scores are and then look over here at the kids doing well in science. So there you go. Um, One of the school board members today called it steady progress, and that's really uh, a a good descriptor of it. and ironically, I guess one of the weaknesses in the report is um, early um, reading, uh, which which drops slightly, um, which is interesting because we have this reading law that says uh, kids are supposed to be proficient by third grade. Um, and there's a big question about why those scores aren't uh, doing better. Um and there were a variety of reasons or, or some speculation why that might be happening. No firm answer, but um, certainly that's going to be something that we're, that is going to deserve or, and uh, get more attention in the next year um, and in future years as, as uh, the state legislature and uh, State Board of Education look at, um, at reading grades. Interestingly, one of the board members, Chairman uh, um, A.L. Collins, said that um, there might need to be much more targeted attention to students who aren't reading at grade level. There was an expert at his school that looked at students and said that um, students come in to kindergarten so far behind that they can't quote unquote access the curriculum, which means, as I take it, they're, they're just not ready for kindergarten and not ready for school. And so that it takes extra time to get the kids caught up. And, um, a lot of them won't be caught up by third grade. And this, um, this, uh, professor who worked for his district worked with a group of kids and got them caught up by fifth grade. But, uh, Maybe uh, third grade um, for kids who start behind, they might need more time. A few ties to policy here, uh, state policy. One you mentioned, which is the, the third grade reading. Um, the other one is this law that says we have to, uh, at all schools, uh, get a grade. Mm-hmm. Um, how did the grades for schools look? Well, as we saw the last two rounds of grades, um, there's a correlation between poverty at a school and the grade. Um, the schools where, a high, where there are high, where there's high poverty, where, um, 80% or more of the children are, 
are economically disadvantaged, those schools are much more likely to get D's or F's, while it's unlikely for a school that has uh, fewer than, I guess, uh, fewer than 40% of the kids um, uh, in poverty, uh, it's unlikely that they're going to get a D or an F. Okay. And then you also uh, wrote about the fact that a couple of the virtual charters, right. which we are have a new two, experiment. Right. We have two well. new virtual charter schools in the state, and they uh, they were tested for the first time, and uh, their grades were were recorded, and um, they aren't doing well uh, in math. Um, and uh, their overall uh, performance grades, both those schools got Ds. Um, science is better and reading in the schools is better. They got C's for reading, F's for math. Um, and they both, representatives of both of those schools, um, came to the board and said, well, okay, we're going to have this new reading plan. We're going to have these new reading plans coming up. Um, they're, these schools are being watched closely because um, they're controversial. Uh, the State Board of Ed essentially mandated um, two four-year pilots uh, for virtual charters. And uh, there was a lot of resistance because in other states, um, these schools haven't performed well. And there was a report out um, from Stanford last year looking at online charters uh, nationwide that said that uh, the kids were uh, – that they weren't doing well by the kids since kids weren't weren't learning at the pace that they should be. Um, so everybody is watching the progress of these schools. Um, I spoke to um, the head of uh, NC Virtual today who said, well, this, the public needs to look at what the school does over four years and not just the first year. Um, that he's looking at it kind of like a kid's report card. And, uh, you know, the first year kind of, or, or the first year is kind of setting a baseline. And then he says, well, look at what we do after four years. Um, you know, it's a new experience and, uh, certainly one that, uh, something everybody's going to be watching for a while. Are these test scores and graduation rates, are they going to be fodder for the campaign trail? Are we already you know, seeing what's that? interesting is that usually uh, uh, the governor sends out a uh, press release saying great scores or, oh, well, we got to improve. Nothing from either of the campaigns this time around. So uh, maybe they just don't know what to make of them. Well, uh, both candidates for governor are talking about uh, – education and uh, specifically uh, education funding uh, and uh, teacher pay and teacher turnover. Um, Will and Colin, you both looked at that in different ways this week. Uh, Colin, you were out in, uh, was it Clayton? Yeah, uh, Clayton. At a, a McCrory event uh, where he toured a school and took some questions uh, from uh, students and reporters, I think, right? Yeah, students in one one classroom and then later uh, took questions from the media and w- without uh, students in the room to, to hear our, our pointed questions. <laughs> so what did he have to say about teacher pay and teacher turnover? Yeah, so this has uh, become sort of a campaign issue, um, and, and McCrory has been going around, uh, particularly to schools, to tout uh, what his campaign characterizes as a, uh, and, and both his office as well, I should say, characterizes as an average teacher pay of uh, $50,000 a year uh, as a result of the raises that were improve, approved in this year's legislative budget. Um, 
And that's gotten some flack from the left, including the NC Association of Educators that claims that that number is inaccurate or misleading, uh, in part because uh, a lot of teachers are making significantly less. You know, the starting uh, teacher pay is $35,000 a year. If you look only at the state's pay scale, which doesn't factor in some of the bonuses certain teachers are eligible for, as well as the the local supplements that uh, counties and school districts kick in, uh, the highest teacher salary is just slightly above 50k uh, on the state state's end, and that's for teachers who have been in the career for 25 years or more. Uh, teachers with less experience than that, the state's portion of their uh, base salary um, comes in uh, a fair bit less. I think if you're uh, in the the 15 to 20 year range, it's in you know, the upper 40s, uh, 48,000 ish, um, and then obviously down from there, depending on your uh, your level of experience. Uh, McCrory has been getting a little bit of flack from that, and he sort of combated that uh, when, when asked questions about it at the school event to say, you know, say like, look, this is an average. I'm not saying every teacher is making $50,000 a year. No one should be, you know, construing that from from our messaging. But accountants has lo- have looked at this, um, and, and they've come up with this at the right number. Uh, I think there's some uh, uh, s- skepticism about it just because we don't know for sure uh, the exact average for this school year, because the school year just began in the last couple of weeks, uh, we don't know for sure yet and have numbers on how many veteran or teachers are returning from last year, how many may have left the profession and then were replaced by people lower down the pay scale. Um, so that's sort of where some of that comes in. Uh, the other issue is teacher turnover. Uh, we've been hearing for for months now about the idea that uh, teachers are leaving North Carolina for other states that pay better. Um, it is clear that there are other states that do pay better. Uh, and in fact, there have been some uh, that have had teacher job fairs uh, in the, the Triangle area uh, trying to recruit some teachers to to other districts in other states. Uh, but a number that's been floating around is I think somewhere in the 13 to 14 percent range uh, as a teacher turnover rate. But what McCrory and, and his uh, education advisor pointed out this week was that number is not really an accurate representation of how many teachers are staying in teaching and moving somewhere else because that number includes people who've retired, people who have died, people who have moved to a charter school or a different school district in the state, people who have decided to go to a different career entirely. Uh, Apparently, if you take all that out and you're purely looking at teachers who uh, we're teaching in North Carolina and have taken a teaching job in a different state. That's only 1.1% of teachers uh, in the most recent year's uh, data. And uh, Catherine Truitt, who's the governor's education advisor, says that's actually outweighed by the number of teachers coming into North Carolina, that the uh, for the, the amount that we lose to other states is half of what we gain from other states. So in her words, we were a net importer um, of teachers. Um, so, so they're making the argument that you, you can't claim that uh, pay or whatever is, is prompting teachers to, to leave the state because the, the numbers don't necessarily bear that out. But I'm sure we'll see other sets of numbers float forward uh, in the next few months, and, and we'll hear this uh, issue batted back and forth between uh, both campaigns uh, in this governor's race. And 50K may be still uncertain, but uh, we've been seeing that number a lot, both in the, in the campaign it's been on the airwaves a lot, and it's also showing up in posters and yeah. Uh, and so there's the state the, buildings. Yeah, so that's that's a, another interesting thing that popped up this week was um, uh, if you go into the the State Department Administration's building, which is where the, some of the governor's offices are located, uh, kind of across from the Science Museum. The lobby has for years now had posters of uh, movies like The Hunger Games that were filmed in North Carolina. A lot of them through the uh, film credit or uh, tax credit that has now gone away and been replaced with a grant program. Uh, those posters 
characters came down sometime in the last couple of weeks and were replaced uh, by a couple of nature scenes uh, that were not very controversial and then a couple of photos of the governor in action. Uh, and the photos of the governor include him at events where he's got this uh, banner in front of him that says teacher pay to 50K. He had the same banners actually um, in Clayton when, when I was there at the school. So these are the banners that are produced by the governor's office to tout things that he's done as governor. So they're, they feel pretty confident that this is an okay use of state government resources to uh, tout things that he's actually done as governor. But the Democrats have come out uh, to say that he's campaigning on the taxpayer dime, that these are uh, claims that his campaign ultimately will be making, and therefore they should be funded by the campaign and not uh, showing up in, in government buildings on uh, pictures of the governor. But when, when his uh, office was asked about that, he said, look, you know, politicians from Barack Obama on down have for years had their pictures up in government buildings. And in this, in a sense, is no different. But the timing does uh, strike some as a little odd because it is a couple months out for the election and you're replacing movie posters that hadn't been touched in years. Uh, well, teacher pay is one way to – and teacher turnover are one way to um, measure uh, how we're doing on education here. Um, another way is the share of the budget that goes to education. And, Will, you looked at that. Um, so uh, what was the claim that you were checking? Right. And this comes from an ad that kind of is a nice segue from what Colin was talking about. Uh, the ad really focuses on the the teacher pay and teacher turnover area. Or, uh, <laughs> but uh, – and it uh, – the, uh, the speaker in the ad is a teacher who says that she's having to leave North Carolina to go somewhere else um, in order to make more money. And um, she claims that, you know, and on behalf of Cooper, that uh, the that McCrory at one point tried to cut the share of the education budget to the lowest that it's been in 30 years. Um, and so we looked at that and uh, actually buried in page 262 of McCrory's proposed budget in 2015 was a handy little chart that went back to the early 80s um, that showed the the percentage of the budget that went to education and um, and it uh, it was true that what he had proposed in 2015 for the 2016-17 school year would have been the lowest uh, total share um, but what the ad failed to mention was that he later went back in 2016, the next year, and upped his recommendation to a share that was actually the highest uh, since 2009-2010. And there were also, uh, another thing that uh, the ad failed to mention was that uh, the share of the budget going to education also fell while Cooper was in the legislature, which uh, McCrory's team eagerly pointed out to us when we asked them for comment on this. So it was one of those things where, you know, it was a, it's a data point that was technically true, but a little bit cherry picked and, um, you know, and, and missing some context that would have given a, you know, a much more accurate picture of what was actually going on. Um, we also looked a little bit um, at another. Uh, so what was the what was the official uh, PolitiFact oh, right. North yeah, Carolina I should actually tell you ruling? That, shouldn't I? That, what, was the, what was the final? Uh, <laughs> right. So we gave verdict. that a half true. Oh, okay. The uh, right. the definition of half true is basically something that is partially accurate, uh, but is missing some important details, important context, and this seemed like pretty much a uh, a textbook half true to us. Um, we also looked at it um, because you know the. Just looking at the, the share of the budget that's going into education doesn't tell the whole story because, you know, education funding could be going up while other things are also going up, you know, highway funding, Medicare, things like that. Um, and in fact, that's exactly what happened under both 
uh, Cooper and McCroy, um, you know, like I said, the share of the budget going to education fell under both of them. But actually, they both saw the per pupil spending increase um, during their respective times in office. So um, that was just uh, one more, uh, I guess, you know. <laughs> and where does, where, where's per pupil spending now? Is it, where, where does it stand in comparison to uh, a few years back or before the recession? The, uh, the estimate for 2015-16 school year was just shy of... Not asking for a dollar figure. Unless you have one. I'll be really yeah. impressed if you have uh, a dollar figure. I want to say actually it was 8898 <laughs> It wow. was something around We're there. We're going to check that fact. <laughs> something around there just short of 8900 um, And uh, that was... When you adjust for inflation, um, that's uh, higher than what it was when Cooper was first in office. But by the end of his tenure in uh, in 2000, 2001, um, in, you know, when Jim Hunt was governor, it was higher than that adjusted for inflation. It was a couple hundred dollars higher uh, per pupil. Okay. So um, they're both kind of, you know, all over the map, but it, it's approximately equal. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Colin, while you were at the, the school, I think you uh, you got some uh, tape of, uh, of what was going on there, right? So what are we going to listen to? Yeah, so this is a, a brief little Q&A session that uh, Governor McCrory did with a group of uh, middle school students at Riverwood Middle School in Clayton uh, when he was there touring classrooms. Um, and this is always fun to hear. Uh, politicians answer questions from people who are not journalists because we always want to ask about the big uh, issues and then we get their their standard talking points. But with uh, with a group of kids, you don't know what subjects they're interested in. Uh, and in this case, uh, I think it was a it was like an English class, so the kids were uh, very curious about the governor's taste in books um, and his uh, skills at writing. So uh, we're going to take a listen to this and, and hear a bit little about uh, uh, what the governor is reading, uh, as well as uh, his thoughts on on writing and editing skills. Somehow the governor managed to work the conversation around almost to HB2, right? It, yeah, so this is, you'll, you'll hear this at the end of this clip uh, where he's talking about his love for George Orwell's 1984, uh, and he, he talks about how it, it seems uh, particularly appropriate given current events that he says are, are similar to, to Big Brother and to uh, thought police sort of things, uh, and that's a, a claim he's made. He didn't specifically mention HB2 to this group of kids because I, I don't think he wanted to explain transgender bathroom use to a bunch of uh, 12 or 13-year-olds, um, but uh, this is a similar uh, – he's used sort of the Big Brother line to criticize some of the groups that have been uh, very vocally uh, opposing HB2 and calling for boycotts and this sort of thing. Okay. All right. Well, let's listen to that, and then we'll be back uh, to talk about uh, ferries, to talk about uh, state regulations, and then, uh, of course, headliner of the week. Stay with us. Um, what's your favorite subject in school? Uh, my favorite subject was history. I love history. Um, do you like to write? I love to write. I didn't like to write when I was your age, though, because uh, my handwriting was so poor. Who shares in that? <laughs> yeah, if you have Yeah, my handwriting, I had a tough time staying within the line, so I was embarrassed about my writing. Even though my writing was good, my handwriting was bad. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't stay within the lines. Is that, is that true with y'all too? Yeah. yeah. So they type a lot of their stuff these days. So. Yeah, and that, the, the typewriter helped me. Mm -hmm. That was back when they were typewriters. <laughs> so um, I love to write. I love to write the older I get. I like to write. Are you good at writing? I am now. I wasn't at your age. And another reason I wasn't good, I was a terrible speller. So I would know what word to do, but I didn't know how to spell it. And back in those days, they didn't have spell check. 
So spell check has made me a more confident writer mm -hmm. than before. Mm -hmm. What do you think you need to improve most about your writing? What do I need to improve most about my writing? Um, less wordy. I think I can, I need, one thing about my writing, when communicating with the general public, I need to be more concise. Does that make sense? Get to the point. That's I need to get to the point and be concise. I tend to, and I, when I, um, when I review people reporting to me's writing, I, I, I do what your teacher probably does. I scratch things out. I'll take out whole sentences and go wasted words. Does that make sense? I wish I had more time to read books. I read, I've read only two or three books this year. I've read two books. I took four days off and read, uh, let's see, the last book I read was uh, two weeks ago about the secret service of uh, five presidents mm. okay. from Truman through uh, Nixon, I think it was. And that was very interesting in history. So it's kind of history, current events about the secret service, which I have to have security now too, sadly. Mm -hmm. Governor, thank you, Zippy. What is your favorite book that you've ever read? A, a book that I just re, I, I, in ninth grade I read this book and I wrote it, I wrote it again four weeks ago. I bought it on the internet, uh, George Orwell, 1984. Oh, that's a good one. Have y'all read that one? Yes. It's called 1984, it's a prediction. I read it in 1971 uh -huh. and 1984 seemed like forever. but. Sadly, some parts of that book have come to fruition. Big Brother and purging ideas, and uh, it's a great book. 1984 by Bill Orwell. He also wrote the book Animal Farm, mm -hmm. which you might be reading sometime. I don't know. I hope they still do. We have a whole set in the library. Animal Farm is a very short book, but it's it's uh, about classes, and they have the pigs are smarter than the horses. And those two books really stayed with me throughout my life. But I, for some reason, I read 1984. I was just thinking about some of the current events. I'm being reminded of Big Brother and purging and the thought police. And sadly, that's happening, I think, right now. Domecast is back. And uh, Colin, you had a story I want to talk to you about, about uh, um, the new ferry that's going to be uh, put into service between uh, Ocracoke and Hatteras out on the Outer Banks. Um, they've been talking about this for quite some time, but the money finally came through for it, right? This is a pedestrian ferry uh, as opposed to all the uh, car ferries that are already out there and are free. But this one is uh, uh, going to cost people, right? Yeah, so this is going to be, uh, instead of the usual car ferry between Hatteras and Ocracoke, this is going to be a $15 uh, fare. But uh, the advantage is that you get to leave your car behind in Hatteras. Uh, it'll take you directly into the village instead of on the, the far end of the island where you still have to drive, I think, about 15 minutes uh, to get into all the uh, shops and restaurants and, and that sort of thing. And this is all uh, thanks in part to this year's state budget, which included, I think, a $6 million allocation for this project. Uh, that'll go along with some federal grant money, which gets them up into the I think, 10 or $12 million range for the entire project. So this is going to sort of transform the way uh, tourism happens uh, to Ocracoke Island, particularly for people who go for day trips. Um, right now, the problem is that uh, as of, I think, 2013, 
something changed with the route uh, that the ferry has to take. There was some shoaling, which is, I guess, where sand builds up on the route. Uh, so the so sort of direct point A to point B that this ferry had been taking that only took about 30 minutes uh, ended up being impassable. So they had to take this giant detour, um, and it's now an hour-long ferry ride, which means since they didn't add more boats to the ferry route, the ferries don't come as often as they used to. The lines get longer and longer during the, the peak, and uh, on, on some particularly <laughs> unusually bad days, people can wait in line for, for three hours uh, to go from Hatteras to Ocracoke on, on this ferry, uh, which they've studied and, and determined it actually means that about 9% of the people who are in line at these peak times uh, just sort of say, screw it. They sit in line for a while in their car, and then they just turn around and they go somewhere else. And that's bad news for the businesses on Ocracoke Island, because uh, if those people decide that they're not going to come, then they're not going to the shops, they're not buying t-shirts, they're not eating food. Uh, And so a lot of those tourism-oriented businesses have seen losses of about a a quarter of their business, uh, some have said, over the last couple years. so they've been really pushing for some sort of solution to this. The DOT embarked on this long feasibility study that, that lasted about a year and finally resulted in a report uh, back in June, and, and that looked at several options. One was to try to dredge the sand so they could go back to the normal route, which is apparently what a lot of the businesses on the island wanted, is just let's let's go back to the way things were because we knew business was good then, uh, but that's gonna, that would cost millions of dollars. It's unclear how often they would have to do it in order to keep up with the, the shifting sands of, uh, of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so the study determined that this passenger ferry was the best way to do it, that you could still bring people in. They wouldn't be bringing their cars. Um, and uh, to, to make it an easier sell uh, for people who might not want to do a whole lot of walking once they get to Ocracoke, there's going to be uh, golf cart rentals for people who want to ride around on their own. Uh, there's going to be a, a transit service service, which I think might be the first of its kind for an island community to have a tram that uh, takes you around the island to, to all the businesses and the different points of interest. Yeah, they're going to get rail before Wake County does. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of jealous of uh, <laughs> the, the transit amenities that, that Ocracoke is supposedly going to have uh, under this new ferry route. Um, but the idea is just to stimulate uh, tourism to Ocracoke, get it back to, to where it once was, um, and make it easier uh, to get over there and, and leave cars behind. Because I've, I, personally, I've never been to Ocracoke. I go to the uh, less posh environs of, uh, of North Topsail Beach where I was last week. Uh, but um, apparently it's not a very good place to take your car. There's not a whole lot of parking. Uh, if you're there at the peak of tourist season, everybody's driving around and clogging the tiny little roads. So if, if more people are on foot or in golf carts or taking mass transit, even though the mass transit consists of a tram, uh, then, then that's supposedly going to make the environment of the, the island uh, a little less congested. Mm-hmm. Your your vacation is more blue collar. Yeah, I don't I don't do the whole ferry thing or the um, fight with tourists from the north uh, to get seats on ferries and, and that sort of thing. So I I just like to to get to somewhere cheap that has oceanfront access and park it with a book for a week and get off of Twitter and stay away from politics, which I succeeded in doing. So I was you know that was a, a positive thing. I had to use Domecast to catch up on the news last week, which yeah. was unusual for me. We, we were all pretty jealous. Um, uh, so, uh, we've got a lot of, uh, campaign coverage coming up. We're going to be profiling candidates. We're going to be, um, taking, uh, deeper dives into some of the issues in the governor's race and the Senate race and other races. And, uh, Craig, you had the, the first of, um, our essentially issue stories in the governor's race, uh, that you're, uh, you're working on. Um, you looked at uh, deregulation and what the candidates for governor have to say and what their records uh, have been on that. So what did you find? 
Well, yeah, I think there's, I guess not surprisingly, there's probably two <clears throat> distinct approaches we would see depending on who wins the uh, the election this year. Republicans have made uh, what they call reg reform. Of course, reform is a loaded word. You know, one person's reform is another person's irresponsible, eliminated safeguards. So there's a lot of uh, contention uh, with a lot of these issues. But the Republicans for five years in a row have uh, have come up with pretty widespread uh, deregulation bills. And, uh, it's, you know, rubbed some people the wrong way, the environmentalists primarily. Um, so, um, uh, Governor McCrory this week, uh, at the same little press conference that Colin was at, uh, said there's still more to do. They're going to take a look at some, some more. And it's not just the, the regulations <clears throat> themselves, but how the regulators interpret them, that, that it's not consistent and business, they're getting feedback that they need a little more consistency and, and, you know, common sense in how those are, uh, interpreted. On the other side, Roy Cooper is somebody who really kind of, in a way, made his, his career through a, lo- a lot of regulations, uh, not a lot of regulations, but through some key safeguards, particularly, uh, in, um, uh, the environment. They negotiated a big, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority smokestacks, uh, clean air, uh, settlement that was really kind of, uh, uh, <clears throat> landmark unusual, uh, ruling. Uh, Cooper, when he was in the legislature, uh, made the intentional pollution, uh, intentionally polluting someplace, dumping bad stuff, a felony for the first time. And he's also, uh, was really active, uh, in consumer protection. That's kind of defined his, uh, his career as attorney general with mortgage fraud, payday lending kinds of things. So, uh, they both say we're looking for a middle ground where it's, it's, it's common sense. It's not, you know, that, that there's room to do this and still have a strong business economy. Uh, but you know, how you go about that is two distinct ways. Okay. And one of the big issues right now, of course, that's, um, playing a big role in the campaign is the regulation of coal ash, right? And they, right. Do they stake out different, uh, uh, different areas on that. Um, you know, they, they, McCrory's been on the record a lot. Uh, they've gone out of their way to deal with coal ash and kind of be out in front uh, on that issue, particularly since he worked for Duke Energy for so long. Uh, <clears throat> Cooper, you know, I didn't, I haven't talked to him about that, what he thinks, if he thinks they're doing enough now, uh, Cooper, unfortunately, like most legislators across the country, coal ash wasn't on their radar back in, you know, until 2009 when this massive spill in, uh, was it Kentucky, uh, happened. And, uh, so McCrory's people are pointing to that as evidence that, uh, you know, Cooper and the rest of the Democrats really didn't do much uh, for the environment, at least on the coal ash front. Uh, so that's, you know, a little bit of a weak, weak spot. But as I said, it wasn't really on anybody's radar at the time. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, well, we will take a break and we'll be right back with Headliner of the Week. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. And we're back with headliner of the week. Uh, Craig, why don't you go first? Who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to pick uh, a guy named uh, Chakrapani Tatamedi. He was the program manager for uh, NC Flex, which is a uh, 
a pre-tax uh, benefit program for state employees. Uh, he was in the news actually a few months ago when, when he was arrested for having misappropriated a whole lot of money from that program, $500,000. Uh, it was in the news this week because a related audit came out. The legislature wanted to know if a, comp- if a predecessor benefit program uh, would be vulnerable to the same kinds of abuse. And an audit came out and said, no, for a variety of reasons, it wouldn't. But it made reference to another audit that we hadn't known about that was conducted a little earlier by the uh, state office of budget and management into the state personnel offices practices of this uh, NC flex program. And I'm just starting to read that audit now. We're going to know more about it on Sunday. But uh, Basically, it goes into great detail about where, you know, how this guy allegedly uh, misappropriated half a million dollars through uh, lavish trips, stays at the uh, the Biltmore Hotel and spas and uh, just all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, freebies, basically. How was he able to uh, um, get that build to the to the state? I think it was because he just. Uh, was it was a one man show kind of he was he there was a fund that this program had set up that was supposed to be for marketing and advertising and to bring in new members so every member con- contributed to this uh, this fund and he just which was administered by a third party administrator so he submitted reimbursement claims to this third party administrator which signed off on them so a uh, bunch of money. All right. Uh, Chakrapani Tedmedi, is that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in, in the hat for uh, headliner of the week for reasons that uh, no one really wants to be headliner of the week uh, uh, because of that. Um, Will, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner of the week is Daryl Howard, um, and you need a lot fewer numbers to understand why for him. Just one, 25, which is how many years he spent in prison uh, for uh, two murders that he did not commit. Uh, He was recently let out. Um, And really, the reason he's the headliner of the week is because he was the photo of the week for us. We had just a really touching photo of him hugging his wife for the first time, you know, as a free man and you know, almost three decades. And that was just really, uh, really impressive. So good for him. Happy for him. Hope that, uh, you know, he can ha- retain some semblance of a normal life after so many years in prison. Yeah. It brought Mike Nifong back into the news. Yeah. 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 He was actually, he was saved from testifying about the case. Uh, cause he was the, uh, the prosecutor, obviously, um, you know, uh, of Duke lacrosse infamy. Um, and, and also he was the prosecutor. In this right. Case. And he was the prosecutor in this case. And he was going to have to testify if, uh, if Durham had decided to appeal, uh, uh, Mr. Howard's, uh, being released from prison, try and keep him in jail. But, um, they decided not to appeal that. Um, and so therefore no testimony from the former DA. Okay. Uh, Daryl Howard in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Chakrapani Tadamedi. I'm going to say that as many times as I can. And um, Colin, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going with the uh, Senate Leadership Fund, which is a, a super PAC connected to Mitch McConnell in the Senate. They uh, announced on Thursday that they are dropping uh, quite a bit of money into the uh, U.S. Senate race here in North Carolina. They're going to be spending $8.1 million on TV ads on behalf of uh, Republican incumbent Richard Burr. Um, this is, a, in a sense, of a game changer for, for this race because that money is uh, actually a fair amount more than uh, some of the candidates, particularly opponent Deborah Ross, has raised, even though uh, for several quarters she was actually raising more money than Richard Burr. Uh, a lot of that uh, gets uh, blown a little bit 
bit out of the water by the fact that you've got this group that can raise sort of unlimited uh, money. It looks like a lot of their donations are uh, million or multi-million dollar chunks from 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 pretty wealthy people across the country uh, to to run these kind of ads on behalf of a candidate, and it, it really shows the uh, level of competitiveness that we've now reached in the the U.S. Senate race. This was a race that a year ago people didn't think was going to be all that competitive. Uh, that the the Senate Leadership Fund type groups would be focusing their resources on other states' Senate races. Um, where they would uh, be more likely to be concerned about uh, losing the uh, Senate seats held by Republicans. Now they've got to spend a lot of money for Richard Burr because Deborah Ross has proved to be uh, stronger than people thought. Um, and then there are, of course, a lot of other outside factors, uh, one of them being Donald Trump, uh, that has, has sort of changed the election calculus this year. And this $8.1 million is a pretty big example of that. All right. So the uh, the Senate Super PAC, what was the name of it again? Senate, Senate Leadership Fund. Sen- Senate Leadership Fund. Okay. So we've got the Senate Leadership Fund. We've got uh, Daryl Howard, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, Chakrapani Tadamati. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I was I was all set to, to go with Craig's uh, headliner of the you week. You just wanted to say that again, didn't uh, you? <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, I was all set to go with him. Uh, Craig had me convinced, but then I feel like we should really go with a happy, uh, happy story over, um, uh, assorted one. So, uh, let's, let's go with the, uh, uh, the happy news for Daryl Howard and, uh, uh, make him our headliner. Of the well, week and Daryl Howard's probably going to be getting a lot more than $500,000 too. So mm-hmm. bigger money at stake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, that's our headliner of the week. That's our Domecast. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening, and check us out next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 